all the files of Hope Park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Artificial intelligence, it's in your headlines and on your social media feed. AIs like Midjourney and Dolly have filled my Twitter feed with algorithmically generated nightmare images of Tony Soprano as a Roman emperor and Big Bird participating in the January 6th riots. At the same time, the press has become enamored with the story of Blake Lemoyne, a Google engineer who the company let go after he insisted that the Lambda chatbot was sentient. Are we at the beginning of the AI apocalypse? Have our machines finally become sentient? Simply, uh, no. And conversations about AI outpacing human artists and chatbots becoming living beings are part of a pretty typical tired news cycle around AI. They also mask the actual dangers of the technology we should be watching out for. With me today to talk about the real and imagined terrors of artificial intelligence is Motherboard Senior Editor Janice Rose. Janice, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been writing about this a lot. You know, as I was kind of going through your recent articles, every you have a bunch of links to other things where you've kind of been talking about you know, algorithmic bias and the kind of the real dangers of AI for a long time. So I'm really glad you're here with us. Um, yeah. For the uninitiated, can you kind of recap what happened with Blake Lemoyne and the Washington Post and Google and all, and all of that? Yeah. So, um, so this past week there was a, um, an article in the Washington Post uh, that was basically um, an interview or, or talking to uh, this Google engineer named Blake Lemoyne, who um, had previously published a Medium article uh, that was sort of like a detailed chat log of that he had taken from his conversation with Lambda, which is a uh, natural language processing system that is uh, being built by Google. Um, basically, one of these systems that takes an insane amount of data um, and then uses that data in order to process contextually language and respond to and, uh, and parse human language. Um, and so, you know, he had become convinced through this inter- these interactions that um, because of the sort of like, you know, and, and a lot of these systems in the past had, have been pretty uncanny and spooky uh, in a similar way, another system is called GPT-3, which was released by OpenAI, um, which is generally known as being a, like, just really, like, creepily good at um, replicating human speech and parsing human speech. Um, and so he had determined, I guess, through his interactions with this, it gotten spooked and basically started saying uh, to this Washington Post reporter that um, he believes that the AI had come to life and that it was now a sentient life form. Um which of course is pretty silly, um, and uh, a lot of um, sort of uh, AI experts uh, sort of immediately kind of came on on social media, and we're talking about how like this is like a very kind of silly conversation. Like this is also a conversation that we've been having for decades. Um, this is like not a new uh, concept, and and also like you know here's all these different reasons why this is like kind of wrong and also kind of dangerous to say. Um, and so he had posted that Medium article, um, and then uh, after posting that article was suspended with pay by Google, um, presumably for breaking the um, his like NDA because 
you know, Google engineers not allowed to talk about what you're working on, especially with the, you know, the AI division, like just kind of always locked down. Like you're not, you're not really supposed to talk about these things uh, that you're working on without like media approval, which is like a lot of companies. And so there was also then this other article just a week prior in the wash in the Wall Street Journal uh, that had a, another Google employee talking similarly about this. And so basically, this is kind of the whole situation was like this huge debate about AI sentience kind of like was was brought back from the dead um, as a result of this Google engineer in this very like high profile and kind of bombastic way, like coming out and being like, I believe that the AI is sentient based on like my observations. You said it was that AI people had said it was dangerous to have this kind of conversation and frame it this way. Uh, can we, can you kind of dive into that? I mean, like, first of all, like there's, there's a long, long history of the idea of sentience, obviously, like even before computers, like, you know, philosophers have talked about the idea of sentience and what makes a, what makes a, a being or a sort of like presence, like, you know, considered self-aware, considered sentient, um, able to make decisions. Um, and with computers, there's actually like a whole concept. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a phenomenon known as the ELISA, um, ELISA, it's E-L-I-Z-A. And it's basically a, uh, it describes a phenomenon where people tend to take computationally generated outputs and assign this deep meaning to them and sort of like ascribe human-like qualities to computational outputs and also find sort of deep layers of meaning in uh, sort of like symbols and patterns that otherwise wouldn't really mean anything. And it's just, it's just like, you know, people, it's not just like Google engineers, like people catch themselves doing this all the time. It's like very human to want to assign human qualities to non-human entities like, you know, like a computer or an AI or some sort of thing like this. And so I guess the da- the danger to answer your question uh, is just that, well, for one, it's like kind of, you know, can create a very unnecessary panic, I think, when people start to assume that like, oh, like this AI is sentient, you know, uh, like when it's actually just, you know, a sort of like, uh, it's 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 a huge collection of uh, generated behaviors that are learned through training, and by training it through this massive data sets, it's able to recognize things and respond to queries. Um, and that's like not the same thing as being a sort of like you know autonomous individual. And so I guess the danger there is both that like you know it creates this like false fear, and also that it kind of like takes um it takes responsibility off of the people who are designing these systems because if you think that like oh well this this algorithm is sentient like well we can't control it anymore uh i guess we just met, might as well let google do whatever they're going to do with it um that creates a lot of problems because you're you're essentially taking responsibility off of the people who are supposed to be responsible for making sure that these systems uh don't cause harm so I think that's like one of the points that I was making in this article that we're going to talk about in a bit. Right. All of these, all of these systems have architects. They all have inputs. People have designed them. Right. And mm-hmm. this is also, I thought this was really interesting. I hadn't heard this story until I read um, 
uh, one of your pieces that I'll bring up here in a window in a second. Uh, this is not the first time that Google engineers have been kind of ousted because they've spoken up about AI, right? Can you tell us the story of Timnit Gebru? Yeah, sure. So in 2020, uh, there was a, a very sort of like high profile firing at Google um, involving a AI ethicist, um, a black woman named uh, Timnit Gebru, who had been... Um, you know, very uh, vocal about um, diversity within the company, about um, the harms of AI and the potential for bias and the ways that that can harm marginalized communities. Um, And basically, um, she had gotten into kind of an internal sparring match with a lot of the higher-ups at Google, uh, having to do with a paper that she had co-written with several other um, people on the ethical AI team at Google um, that had to do with this exact topic, with... um, these uh, these systems, which are known as large language models, which are basically um, they're they're essentially templates. You can think of them as templates that are trained uh, with training data um, that is typically composed of just like billions and billions and billions of um, you know potentially trillions of lines of text um, that are usually pu- pulled from different data sets. Like they're pulled from sources in, uh, on the open web. They're pulled from websites. They're pulled from you know, books, uh, all kinds of things that could be used to sort of like train the model to recognize speech patterns and to respond accordingly. And so these large language models are so large and they, and they uh, are trained oftentimes with something that's called um, uh, unsupervised learning, which is basically meaning that um, instead of having a human sort of like go through every single training example and being like, yes, this is right. Yes, this is right. Yes. No, this is wrong. Um, an unsupervised training will typically involve, uh, they've through advances in machine learning, they found that like, there is a way to basically have the model to some extent train itself. Um, where once it recognizes a certain number of examples, it can kind of just go off and like fill in the blanks. Um, and there's also what's called one shot, uh, uh, one shot or few shot learning, which is basically, um, which means that instead of having to train an AI for individual tasks, like instead of having to say, this is how to recognize this figure of speech, this is how to recognize a joke, this is how to recognize like this other task, like here's how to recognize an image of a car. Um, instead of training AI for individual tasks, uh, what few shot learning does is it basically enables uh, the human operator to basically uh, train, to do supervised training for only a couple of examples. And then the AI kind of takes over and continues to learn through just the data set that's provided. And so what these models are is they're massive, truly massive, like the, the number of parameters, which are the sort of adjustable um, sort of like units within the the, the model um, are now, I think, almost at one, like one trillion. Uh, some of the largest models have uh, hundreds of billions of parameters, um, and to the point where you get to the you get to the point where basically it's um, it's virtually impossible. And this is getting back to what Timnit Gebra was warning about in this paper and her co-authors. They were warning that like once you get big enough, once you have a model that is so massive, it becomes effectively impossible to um, to sort of like perform a check on why is it doing what it's doing. And to a very large extent, I think that a lot of the people who work at these companies like Facebook and Meta and Google and OpenAI, 
don't understand, uh, and nobody understands, uh, how they're coming to these conclusions. So even though they know the data that's in there, and even though they know that the tr- they understand the training that the model went through, um, there isn't a clear explanation mo- a lot of the time for why it generates the results that it did. And so basically, the point that uh, Tim Gebru and all these people were trying to make in this paper was that... Um, models of a certain scale pose actually like a huge danger because if you don't have a way to um, sort of check on these algorithms and control them to make sure that they're not harming people, if there's no way that we can predict like what, how it's going to make its decisions, then effectively we've, we've created, you know, like a, an uncontrollable piece of technology. Um, and so for bringing this up, uh, there was a huge amount of controversy within Google uh, Tim McGabber was supposed to, and her collaborators were supposed to present it at a conference. Google tried to block them from having it at, at this conference and it had them retract it. Uh, and then the authors of the paper pushed back and it caused this huge rift and which ended in uh, Timnit being fired um, in this kind of very high profile um, thing that happened, uh, especially because uh, of Timnit sort of being a very sort of like respected and uh, um very like well-regarded uh, AI researcher in the field um, and that her hiring and, you know, the hiring of other people within Google was regarded kind of as a move for diversity and for um, allowing people um, from marginalized backgrounds to have a seat at the table. And that was supposed to be sort of like the whole justification for that. And so it became about a lot of things. It became about the dangerous sort of nature of extremely large um, uncontrollable AI models and also about this this issue of diversity and of the sort of warnings that uh, she and other people at Google were trying to make about how when you have systems that lack these controls, it has negative consequences for marginalized people and for people who are historically discriminated against. And I want to be very specific about the harm done. This is not something that is like theoretical. Uh, this we are seeing motherboard is reported on it repeatedly. Uh, over and over again, how bias is when you have these large data sets, it's kind of a garbage in garbage out problem. The bias is encoded in that data. The people that are programming the systems sometimes unconsciously don't even think about it. Um, it goes in and like, I think a really good place for us to look at this is like facial recognition software stuff, which often run oftentimes runs on these big data sets. Can you talk a bit, a little bit about this and like, some of the concrete harm that is coming from these systems. Sure. Um, so I guess like one prominent case is that there was a man in um, Detroit, I believe, um, who was arrested, falsely arrested um, for because of facial recognition technology. And then a second man, I think uh, earlier this year, or potentially I think at the end of last year, also came out saying that the same software had uh, falsely arrested him. So like, you know, we've seen a lot of examples like, you know, and these are things that, you know, AI ethicists and privacy experts have been warning about for the past decade and a half. Um, These were kind of sort of very foreseeable consequences to having systems that attempt to recognize and categorize human beings just from a picture of their face. Um, there are, you know, countless examples of that. There's predictive policing, which is the which has actually been around for a while now. I think like almost like just over over ten or fifteen years now. Whereas when the first uh, predictive policing sort of software started, um, Predpol I think is one of the most prominent ones where 
basically what they do is that they take um, crime statistic data and they feed it into an algorithm which then attempts to predict where future crimes will occur. The problem with this, of course, is that it's a feedback loop because where do police historically have most of their activity? Where do where are police focused? Typically, um, you know, communities of color, immigrant communities, um, queer communities, marginalized communities that are that are historically over policed. That's where police show up. That's where all the data comes from. So there's obviously a, a preponderance of data that comes from those communities. And so when you have when that's the data that you have and you feed it into an algorithm, which tells you to predict where it's going to happen next, obviously the software is just going to return more results that, you know, show you that tell you like, oh, to check in these areas. And that's led to profiling. It's led to racial profiling. It's led to, it's led to, you know, discrimination in, in sort of a way that um, what I like to say about, about, you know, all these algorithmic systems is that they're force multipliers. Like you're taking an existing system of discrimination of that that is biased that has that is subject to you know discriminatory tendencies and you're sort of just amplifying it and reinforcing it and now uh, the and this is part of the sort of the danger with these large language models too is that you have this it, it serves as kind of a reinforcement where people can and will point to the system and say like well you know computer says this so it you know I'm just going by what the computer says. Um, and that was exactly the justification that they gave when they arrested um, those men who were falsely identified by facial recognition. There was another uh, case in New York um, during the protest movements uh, of 2020s, during the uprisings uh, for, for George Floyd and for racial justice. Um, in New York City, there was a man who I think at one point he so he was accused of holding a megaphone and hurting a police officer's ear because he was yelling into the megaphone and you know obviously he was like a community organizer it's very unclear exactly like what went on there um but they put out a warrant for him and when they showed up at his apartment building uh there was bystanders who were filming and they noticed that one of the pieces of paper that the one of the officers that were doing, there was this big standoff outside of his building. There was helicopters and everything. And this is in Brooklyn. And uh, during the standoff, somebody happened to be filming and they caught this piece of paper that one of the officers was holding. And it had a facial recognition data sheet, which basically indicated that they had used facial recognition to I, presumably identify uh, this suspect from a photo taken at the protest and match it with a photo that was on file. So, you know, again, this was like kind of a, a, a way that an activist who had specifically been involved in the George Floyd protests in 2020 was targeted. So yeah, those are just a few examples. Um, there are other examples that involve, um, you know, all kinds of uh, things where uh, we're, we're basically seeing, you know, uh, this has been talked about a lot in the past couple of years, we're basically seeing kind of like an AI generated resurgence of race science of pseudoscience and like eugenics and things like that have been disproven scientifically for hundreds of years. Um, but they're kind of going to come back because you have these algorithms that are basically told to classify images of people based on facial characteristics and other things, um, and then use that to sort of categorize them. And so there was I remember many years ago in like 2016 or 2017, there was this really um, awful paper um, by 
these researchers, I think based out of China, who basically said, we can look at photos of people and determine whether or not they're going to commit crimes based on their face, purely based on their face. Um, of course, the data that they had used for this system was all taken from people who had been put into the Chinese criminal justice system. So once again, you see this kind of feedback loop happening where the data that has previously been generated, which has not been unbiased, it has been targeted um, and towards specific groups of people, is then put back into a system which then performs this feedback loop over and over again and results in more discrimination down the line. And this time, the danger is that people can be like, oh, well, computer said that it looks like you. And like the during, I think uh, during the interrogation of the man who was arrested in Detroit, who was falsely arrested for uh, based on facial recognition, uh, the only reason that he found out that facial recognition was involved was that someone during one of the officers during the interrogation mentioned, well, the computer said that it's you. The computer says it's you. And that was the only thing that tipped him off. And then his lawyers looked into it. And then sure enough, they had used this facial recognition system to um, pick him out um, and to, to sort of target him. All right, cyber listeners, we are going to pause there for a break. If you are watching on the Twitch stream, we will be back immediately. If you are listening to the podcast, we will be right back after a few words from our sponsors. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We are talking with Janice Rose about the real problems with AI that have nothing to do with sentience and nothing to do with putting artists out of work. Uh, Janice, so... Another aspect of this is, and I think it's something that that uh, Gebru was talking about, is the massive scale of these things and like this snowball effect, right? Like these, because of the amount of data that's gone into these things and because of the way they're kind of training themselves and accelerating themselves, like it's, it's as if once bad pieces of information get in, in there and kind of become codified in the systems, it is essentially impossible for them to learn any other way to be unless you burn the whole thing down and start over, right? Like- yeah, that's that's kind of the idea. It's uh, the thing that I always try and emphasize uh, when we're talking about, especially when we're talking about these large language models, um, because the models are effectively templates, right? Like the idea of training a model is because the reason why huge companies like Google and Facebook and, and OpenAI train these models is because they have the resources. It requires an insane amount of computing resources to do this training. And the reason for creating the model is so basically we have this template that we can use. And then like each time we want to make a machine learning system that does, you know, something does some kind of task. It's designed to do something. We can take this template and then use that as the sort of baseline model of reality that we're using to uh, train these more specialized tasks. And so um, the danger here is that we have these models, 
but they're being built by the same like four or five, six companies. And whatever biases are embedded into those models, the idea is that uh, people who have less resources, um, you know, there's going to be, you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, probably even sooner, there's going to be tons of companies that are going to want to use these models to do whatever, to make whatever products they, they want to make. And the issue is that, you know, Google and Facebook and these other companies are the ones that are kind of setting the baseline. Like they're the ones that are defining the ground truth reality through, through these models, which have already been trained. And anything that goes into those models is going to sort of go downstream and it's going to uh, sort of replicate uh, through anything else that gets made with it. So that's the sort of the danger that, um, that Timnit Gebru and these other uh, AI researchers were trying to warn about was that, you know, once you have these massive systems, these massive models, um, and they become sort of the standard, they become standardized, the problem is that whatever went into them is just going to go all the way down the line and cause problems in the future. Uh, there's a really startling example of this that is attached to something that has been a lot of fun for everybody for like the past couple of weeks, this dolly thing, you know, we, we type in phrase and we get all these fun, these fun pictures and we're sharing, we're all having a good time. Um, when this thing kind of first came on the scene, Janice in April, you wrote a piece uh, about the very racist and sexist images that you, that is pretty easy to get to come out of this system. Um, and I think that ties ex- back into exactly what you're talking about here. Can you walk us through the story? I'm going to bring it up on the screen for everybody. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, so Dolly is this, uh, is it's an AI model. It's a large language model, um, like the kind I was just talking about, um, developed by OpenAI. And basically, it's a very impressive model. Um, it is one of the largest of its kind. Um, and the sort of like, uh, the claim to fame is that it is able to take text queries and like giving a description of something like cats playing chess in space or an avocado made of a ch- like a chair made of avocado and generate that um, sort of using these massive, massive data sets of images that it has been trained where it's basically, and, and to be clear, like what these, what these data sets are is that they are labeled images. They're not just like regular images trained in They're an image and then a description of the image, a text description of the image. And then you feed millions and millions and potentially billions of these images to the system. And it eventually learns how to recognize things. Um, but then there was uh, in April, there was a, um, OpenAI basically posted a um, a documentation of their training process and all of the things that they had uh, been doing to basically test the the model. And in doing so, they showed that there's actually um, there's actually a lot of places where um, typing in queries will just get extremely biased results. Like typing in CEO will generate entirely images of white men in suits or ties. Um, and then typing in nurse uh, will, t- will generate images of women, typically Southeast Asian women. Uh, so like, again, it's like we're seeing these like stereotype, these racial stereotypes and sexist stereotypes creep into the models. Um, and they have sort of like a description uh, in their, in their documentation. They go into describing like how they're trying to um, combat this, how they're trying to like, install safeguards and there actually are a number of safeguards in uh, dali that prevent 
um, certain queries from generating uh, sort of like harmful results, like, you know, like something that could be defamatory or uh, that could be that could be used to sort of impersonate another person or like deep fakes and stuff like that. Like those are those are all things that these uh, that these uh, developers are actively working on. But like this, this is kind of the, the current state of this technology is that even with all of these sort of safeguards in place, they still can't figure out a way to not make it produce these like really stereotype racist, sexist results. And that was kind of like what the, this article was about. Unless you go in and put in the safeguards manually, right? Yeah. I mean, pr- well, presumably, but presumably, like yeah. what they were saying is that, you know, we have some of these safeguards in place. We have some, they are good at protecting against certain types of harm, but not others. And, you know, one of the things that it is apparently not very good at is it's taking all this data. And again, a lot of this is just web data. A lot of this is just data that's scraped from the web and labeled. And so um, depending on where you're getting that data from and depending on like who it represents, like what if you're getting images and they you know, represent, if there's a hundred thousand images of doctors and they're all like white men with glasses, you know, that's who's going to come up uh, when you search doctor. If there's a hundred bajillion images of CEOs and they're all white guys with ties, that's what's going to come up. So like, again, it's like that there are efforts to sort of fix this, but um, this is kind of getting back into what Timnit Gebru and her colleagues were warning about, which is that, you know, you have these models that are so massive, that have so many, that have hundreds of billions of parameters, and that have, they're trained on countless images. And like, at a certain point, it just becomes either, diff- either extremely difficult or probably impossible to prevent a lot of this stuff because there just isn't a clear cut way to like, figure out what the AI is doing and how it's coming to certain conclusions. And there's so much data involved. And the whole idea of, of uh, machine learning is that you don't have to do the supervised training. You don't have to be like, this is right. This is wrong. This is racist. This is not like, that's the whole idea here. Um, and, but again, it's that the companies that are doing this are all big tech companies. So it's kind of like, it's almost like being gatekept in a way where we have these massive tech companies who are the only ones who have the research to do this kind of uh, machine learning. And they are the ones ultimately who are going to be responsible for like what comes out and what kind of AI exists in the world. And so, yeah, like Dolly. Um, and then, so the, the, the images, to be clear, the images that people were put, have been posting all over social media are not from open AIs, Dolly. They're from another project called Dolly mini, which it does not use the same model as Dali, um, because that Dali, that model is actually not open to the public. Uh, it is closed off, and basically, OpenAI is giving selected access to like developers and machine learning uh, uh, researchers and artists and other people. Um, but not everyone has access to the full the model as as the one that they're using. So these this group of people uh, started trying to basically emulate or replicate the OpenAI model by creating their own, uh, using their own sourced images, using their own data sets, and basically try to do it on a smaller scale. Because 
you know, training, like I said, training these models takes an insane amount of computing resources. And so um, I guess the, the goal of this project was to like, see how good they could get it on a much smaller scale with much less computing resources. And so all of these images you're seeing all over social media are from Dolly Media, or Dolly Mini, um, which is a different model entirely. And you can tell that the results are not quite as good. They're not quite as realistic. Um, but you can still get some fun things like, you know, like Karl Marx being slimed at the Kids' Choice Awards. Like that's um, within its power. Um, but like, yeah, that that's kind of the difference between these two. And it also just kind of highlights how, you know, the all the, the these models are being developed by these huge companies and everyone else is just kind of trying to play catch up and trying to like do it themselves by emulating them. I think you kind of just answered this question, but it's from Chad. I just want to throw it out there. Could they weigh the neural network to make less popularly photographed demographics demographics appear more often in the results? Yeah, the data weighing is part of the training process uh, in a lot of cases. Like weighing the results uh, the, is, is definitely something that is done in like the machine learning process, usually when they're, when it, when it comes to like optimization, uh, using different per, like parameters to like tweak how the outputs come about. That is part of the training process. But like, again, it's the problem is that like, there's so many different contextual instances where these things can be used. And there's so much data that it's, you know, you're and if you're having the if you're doing unsupervised learning, which is what a lot of these models are doing, then it's it becomes really difficult to uh, do that in every case. And it becomes even and even in a majority of cases. Um, so like that is one of the things that people definitely do to reduce um, the sort of like harmful aspects of these things. But again, when we're talking about this, this scale, this kind of scale, ultimately, um, the machine is kind of just going off and, and doing unsupervised learning. And it's hard to tell what you're going to get. Why do you think, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say nobody covers it. We cover it. I, I do see it other places. But why do you think that stories like Lemoyne's and the idea that we're talking to a chatbot that has a soul, why does that get more play? Why do why why are people calling up the AI ethicists and talking to them about that instead of talking more about implicit bias and the inputs that we're putting into these things and everything we've been talking about today? Yeah, I mean like the short answer is because it's sexy, right? It's like it's a very it's a very like sexy, like sort of like intriguing, very like, you know, it, it's and it's an age old it's an age old discussion. Like we've been having these discussions since the birth of computing. And then even before that, um, and it's, you know, it's fascinating. And, 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 you know, for a lot of average people, it's probably very intriguing to consider like, oh, like what defines sentience, like blah, blah, blah. Like what, you know, does that mean? Like if, if I type these queries and the machine answers me in a way which convinces me that I'm talking to a real person, does that mean that the machine is sentient? Like, obviously the answer is no, but for a lot of people, including this, this Google engineer, they they feel like they're they're actually actually are talking to a thing, uh, you know, a, an actual being. And then you know there are other aspects of the of the process where, like I was saying before, you don't really understand a lot of times. And you know the researchers also don't understand how the system is arriving at some of these these results. And so that kind of gives the sense of like that this system is it gives the, it gives this kind of spooky sense that this that the system is alive 
that it's kind of just doing its own thing, that it's developing language, and that we don't understand how it's actually coming to these conclusions. And that's really weird and fascinating. But like, yeah, also what it's doing is that, you know, these questions are kind of immaterial to the actual harms that are currently existing from uh, decision-making systems that are that are owned overwhelmingly by these these large companies that are basically making determinations about people's lives that are, you know, there are algorithms and like, you know, some of the earliest examples of this are in the credit industry, right? Like the whole system of credit um, that we have is based on risk prediction. And that risk prediction traditionally has been done in various ways, but nowadays it's all done through algorithmic prediction. It's all done through, you know, looking at a person's history and then having an algorithm determine like, are they, uh, are they, are they a risk? Like, should we give this person a loan? Should we let this person into this, into this housing, you know, background checks that like, you know, check of your, your credit score. And it's not just your credit score, like the way that that's generated and the way that other determinations are made are based on all of these pieces of data that are for sale through uh, data brokers, which are basically these large uh, companies that collect tons and tons of personal information about individuals um, across the country and, and around the world. And using that data, they use that to make determinations about what you're likely to buy, what your likely income is, you know, how, like, are you able to, like, pay off the mortgage on this house? Like, are you risky to give a loan to uh, jobs, employment, uh, housing? All of these things are algorithmically mediated. And so that is obviously a less sexy topic. It is not like, it's not very like, you know, spectacular and sensationalist to talk about, but like, that is the very real sort of way in which these these systems manifest. And that's, that's kind of the answer is that like, you know, talking about AI sentience is very attractive. And I think it's also very attractive, even though Google did come out um, after this engineer was suspended, um, Google, a Google spokesperson talked to the New York Times and was like, no, we don't actually believe that this, that this uh, machine learning system is sentient. Um, this person was speaking unauthorized, like, um, and, you know, observing these outputs to specifically curated queries is not the same as having a fully sentient uh, sort of being. Um, and but even then, I, I, I've, one of the things that I was hearing and that I was saying during this whole sort of like discussion on social media about like AI sentience is like, it probably benefits these large companies in the long run for people to think that AI is self-aware and sentient because it kind of like removes the responsibility that they have to uh, prevent them from doing harm. Because then we can just be like, computer says yes, computer says no, like and already that's what we have. We already have that. So right, I so feel like there's an abdication of responsibility there. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's an easy out, right? It's like a way of saying like, well, you know, the system just kind of does what it does and and we don't we don't know why, but like, you know, it becomes very very Kafkaesque in a way. I hate to use that word, but like that's pretty much exactly what it is. It's like these very complex system uh systems of decision making that are not that are completely inscrutable to both average people and to the people who are responsible for stewarding these systems in some cases. And that is what's determining who can get a loan, who can get housing, 
uh, you know, bank accounts, all these credit, all these other things uh, that that uh, that directly affect people's ability to like live. So I have a really concrete example of this, actually, uh, that comes from, you know, I went to the, the landlord convention in St. Louis. And I've been, oh, boy. And I've been beating my head against uh, the feature that we're going to publish about that. Uh, stay tuned, motherboard.vice.com. Um, so it was a very, like, old guard set of landlords. Um, but there was a woman that spoke at the very end uh, who had does – does things very, very, very differently. Um, and she does not meet, she don't, she only does section eight housing, which means that it's, you know, people that for whatever reason, they've got like a housing coupon from the government. They're getting government subsidized housing in some way. That's all she deals with. Um, she does not meet any of her prospective uh, tenants at all. She has a checklist. It's she, she kept hammering home to everybody. who's like, I'm completely data driven which helps me try to eliminate bias from my processes. Um, you know, we can the whole separate conversation about whether that's even possible in that space based on the kind of people that are, that are going to be filling out your forms. But um, she used very, very simple algorithms. We'll say to completely, to, to completely control the kind of people that was coming into her housing. Right. And, and to the point where, uh, all of her locking systems are also automated and centrally controlled so that if someone's going to go view a home, she would just issue them a temporary code. She doesn't ever have to change locks. She just cycles out codes digitally. And I, I, there was a lot of pushback from the landlords in the room. Again, a lot of very old school, basically and everything she was saying. And I would, and from my view, it's like, this is the future of all of these systems. What she's doing, you're all going, if you're still in the game, you're probably going to be doing in 10 and 20 years, but it's going to be scaled up and like way nastier, way nastier. Um, so that's just another concrete example. You talked about housing in there and I like, I've, you know, I saw them talking about it, right? Like that's, that's, yeah. that's already, I, I don't even want to say it's coming. It's already here, you know? Yeah. And there was actually a very famous, uh, case uh in here in brooklyn uh in south brooklyn there was uh a tenants rights organization that came about as a direct result of these this landlord uh that was trying to install facial recognition biometric locks on the whole building to control access kind of in a similar way um with this kind of like landlord tech and we've written we've we've actually written a couple stories about this about like landlord tech um all these kind of like systems of biometric control and how some you know, some building owners are trying to install these now. And basically what happened is uh, these um, these tenants uh, sort of like got together and petitioned against the installation of all this uh, sort of surveillance technology and they won and they, they got the city to stop the, the, the landlord from installing them. And, you know, it, it was so it was kind of like a, one of those like rare moments of victory where um, this 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 kind of organizing worked. And so I think like that's that's why we write a lot about, I like to write a lot about, um, you know, local organizing, because a lot of times when these, when these technologies start in the first place, they start locally. They start with like, it's just this one landlord doing it. It's a new thing. And then people push back. And then if people push back against it, it kind of like, it kind of like prevents the creep in a sense. So um, that was one example of, I think what you're talking about with like this, uh, like the use of, these algorithmic systems as a way of controlling access when it comes to housing. 
All right, I think that's a very doomy, gloomy, and wonderful place to end this episode of Cyber. Janice Rose, thank you so much for coming on and walking us through this and explaining what we should really be afraid of when we're looking at AI. Uh, you can find our work on motherboard.vice.com. If you like the show, please sign up. Follow us on Twitch. You'll get notifications when we go live here. If you missed a little bit of the show, uh, it'll be li- it'll be up as a podcast very, very shortly, wherever fine pods are casted, etc. Uh, people in the chat are saying thank you to you personally, Janice. Thank you again for coming on. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll be back later this week with another uh, conversation about the beauty and horror of the tech world that we all live in. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.